You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Please remain standing for the reading of the Word of God, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. In the name of the living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. So I'm doing it. I'm preaching on John 3.16. It would be like a singer singing happy birthday. I get it. And it's a passage that you all know and you've seen on football games and on bumper stickers and everywhere else. I'm preaching on it because I need to hear it. And it's also a great summary of God's disposition toward us. And so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. There was a Wycliffe Bible translator who was working on translating the New Testament in a region of the world. And was there for years working on this translation. And every day he would go off to his office to work on the translation. He would pass a man who was on the side of the street rolling cigarettes. So he was always looking for paper to roll up and sell for cigarettes. And after five years of translation work, he finally finished and they printed the New Testament in that language. So he was getting ready to leave and go off somewhere else and learn another language and do it again. So on his way leaving town, he finally walked by this man who he would stop and talk to on his way to work and said, hey, I want to give you this Bible that I translated with my team. So I'm, but I want to make you a deal. <laughs> I know what you're going to do with the paper. I want you to read it before you roll it. So the guy made a deal and said that he would. And so the translator goes off and does their amazing Bible translation work, was invited back to that region, and was part of a conference on ministry development, leadership de- development, and church planting. So he did his talk and his sermon, and all of a sudden, someone else gets up. Again, this is 15 years later, 10, 15 years later. And the guy tells the story of his conversion. And he says, well, I was just rolling cigarettes one day. Some Bible guy gave me a Bible. So I pulled out Matthew, and I smoked Matthew. Then I smoked Mark. Smoked Luke. And then I started smoking John. But when I got to John 3.16, instead of sending up smoke to heaven, I finally sent my heart to heaven. And it was John 3.16 that converted the street cigarette-rolling guy to turn him into a preacher in that area who was leading a church planting movement. Uh, And it was John 3.16. The power of John 3.16 that someone who's just out of dedication, just ripping them out, reading them so he can roll them up and make some money. But John 3.16 captured his imagination and his heart and transformed him to the point where this guy became a church planter in this region. John 3.16 is not just for evangelism for non-believers, because we all have the unevangelized parts of our hearts that need to hear that good news again. And if you're like me, you've got some amnesia spiritually, 
and you need to hear that news all over again on a regular basis. So let's start off with God so loved. When the Bible talks about the love of God, it compares it on a regular basis to parental love, the love a parent has. John Calvin, most people don't think about this with John Calvin. They think of him going off on predestination, but he was a softy on many regards. John Calvin describes the love of God as, quote, the lavish fatherly liberality. That's God's disposition of love toward his children is lavish fatherly liberality. One of Calvin's favorite words about God's love and disposition toward us is gratuitous. His gratuitous love, his gratuitous mercy, his gratuitous love, gratuitous favor, gratuitous goodness. The picture of indulgent fatherly care is the picture of an indulgent father. And I'm a father of two girls who are seven and nine, and I get it. They've owned me since birth, and now they're working it. My nine-year-old is actually at the point where she'll say, Dad, can I, and whatever she's asking for, and I'll say, no, 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 not right now. And she goes, Dad? And she'll actually, like, make fun of me for doing the face and knowing that it might actually work. But there's that, the trigger of parental love that has this sense of indulgence. And this is, this is God's love for his children. One thing is, think about the, the, the miracles of Jesus. When he fed, fed the people with the loaves and fishes, he made too much fish. When he had to make the wine out of water, he made too much wine. Jesus loved to be extravagant with his miracles. And that's a picture of God's disposition. It's the overabundance of the love of God for us. There's a too muchness that we actually experience. It's over the top. It's extravagant. It's overflowing. And it's way more than you actually need. And so when you think about the love of God... You're not scraping the bottom of the barrel to see if there's anything left for you. It's the exact opposite. The love of God is an overflowing, think of an indulgent father who's probably more on the verge of spoiling his children than he is trying to teach them tough love. In the theatrical version of The Miracle Worker, which is the account of Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf, soon after the diagnosis of this infant child, Helen's mother leans over the cradle and speaks into the silence and the darkness of this crying child. And in desperation, the mother says, don't you know that we would do anything on earth to help you? Don't you know that we love you that much? That's an earthly parent to a child. How much more is John 3.16 a declaration of a heavenly parent to earthly children of God saying to us in the darkness of our guilt and suffering and darkness, shame, weakness, disappointment, don't you know that I would move heaven and earth to help you? Don't you know that I love you that much? And at times we do not know that because it hurts so bad, or we're so disappointed, or we failed, or our hearts just get hardened. But what if the reality, and and it causes us to wonder, could it really be the case that God's going to move heaven and earth? Doesn't, isn't this just sentimental? Like, what is this that he would really move heaven and earth to help us? And so we have these lingering doubts of the character and disposition of God toward us. 
he's probably loving to that person or that person. But to me, let's wonder about that. And in the midst of that question, he actually shows us his wide embrace. God so loved the world. Now, the world is actually a really surprising word here. The first time that the Gospel of John uses world is in 1-9. Right now, when you say God so loved the world, that sounds nice. It's expansive. Okay. God's love is expansive for the whole world, and he loves everybody in some way. That sounds great. But when you actually look at how the world was used previously in John, it says the word came to the world, and the world didn't recognize him and rejected him. So when it says God so loved the world, what should be reverberating is what world? The denying and rejecting world. There was nothing in the world that, that, that uh, got God's attention to go, oh, I have found someone worthy of my love. The love of God doesn't search for a place that would be a good recipient of love. It creates it. And that's what God's doing. So if you're wondering, okay, how does this love of God work for me? Well, look to the world and see what happens here. God so loved the world. God's heart is so determined that he loves the very world that intentionally and repeatedly rejected him. So this love, as we see in the word world, is persistent. Another picture of this is found, if you're an Episcopalian, you know this from the Eucharistic prayers. There's something fascinating about the Anglican tradition, particularly the six Eucharistic prayers, right one with one and two and right two, A, B, C, and D. All of them, all the Eucharistic prayers in one fashion follow Matthew's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Matthew, out of all the Gospels and from the Apostle Paul, says he broke the bread and gave them the bread and said, eat this. But Matthew does something else. Matthew actually says when he gives the cup, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink this, all of you. Matthew is the only gospel that actually says, drink this, all of you. And all of our prayers, Eucharistic prayers, actually have all of you across the board. They're Matthean. The significance of that is that Matthew's doing something else. Right before the Lord's Supper, he tells a story about Judas being there. Right after the institution of the Lord's Supper, he tells the story about Peter. The clear implication, which I've checked in with some New Testament scholars, I'm not making stuff up and crowbarring in the text, is that Matthew is saying, all of you is pointing toward Judas, the betrayer, and Peter, the denier, and all the rest of them. So God so loved the world should get our attention that if he can handle the rejecting world that rejected his son, and if drink this, all of you, off of the the lips of his son is a gracious invitation to the one who just betrayed and the one who's going to deny, that's an invitation for us too. We are included in that robust, deep, scandalous all of you. And this love is anything but sentimental. This isn't a nice, sentimental pat on the head. This is way deeper. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's the scandal of the cross. He gave his son, the innocent, to save others. The innocent son 
who in only son is talking about the, the one-of-a-kind uniqueness of the son. It's a highlight of the costliness of this love. This is not cheap grace by any stretch. It was a very costly grace for God. In 1 Peter refers to this as the precious blood of Christ. This is a costly sacrifice for the sake of his love for us. Let me tell you a story of costly love. We have a daughter, and her name's Zoe, and she's the youngest of two, so being the second child, we wanted her to have a sense of leadership. She's born in September, so we let her go to kindergarten when she was four, turning five, but we actually had her do kindergarten again, just so she could actually be the oldest somewhere in her life, because she's always the youngest, so uh, when, when we told her she was going to do kindergarten again, she was very angry, but then when we said, you're going to be the tallest, you're going to be the smartest, you're going to be the oldest, you're going to be the leader. She loved it. She loved the idea of influence. So, and she was. She was there in kindergarten for the second time. Added to the class, <coughs> this new class, was a girl named Frances who has Down syndrome. And we talked to her about what that looked like for her as a leader. And we talked about including this little girl and making it, using her influence to show the other kids that... Uh, Playing with Francis is something that you should want to do. She, act, she made playing with Francis a cool thing by her influence of being the oldest and tallest and all of that. And so we were really just proud of her for um, doing this. And, and then the teacher told me a story. The class was having a competition one day. And Francis and Zoe, my daughter, were the anchors of the two teams. They blo- broke the teams into two. And they had to go pick up certain things, and a certain, whoever got the most things in their, their bucket would win. And my daughter and Francis are the anchors, and it's tied. So when they go head to head, whoever wins between Zoe and Francis, the team wins. So the teacher explained to me the next day when I went to go check in that Zoe went fast enough to look like she was trying hard so all of her teammates wouldn't think she mailed it in, and especially so Francis wouldn't think that a victory was handed to her. She went slow enough so Francis would win. And then what happened, Francis wins in her team. What happens when a team wins, especially when they're kindergartners? Like, they erupt in joy. They surround Francis. They're high-fiving her and giving her a dog pile hug. So Francis is like the king of the universe all of a sudden. And Zoe is just thrilled. They're cheering her name. Like they would have put, him on her, put her on the shoulders if they knew how to do that. And so I asked Zoe. I, ter- I heard the story. My daughter didn't even tell me the story. So I, her teacher tells me. And I, at dinner, I was like, I heard a story. And I told the story and Zoe was sitting there. I said, Zoe, why did you do that? And she said, I love Francis enough to lose. And I started doing this at the dinner table. Uh, One out of just pride of like, wow, she didn't get that one from me. I'm the uber competitive guy. And so I'm crying at the dinner table. And she said, she looked at me and she said, dad, are you upset that I didn't beat her? 
because I'm always about winning. So I'm like, pummel them, put your foot on their neck and crush them, and winning's great, and yeah, you have fun, but winning's a lot more fun. Like, I'm the softball coach who does that. And so she, she was worried that my tears were because I was upset that she didn't win. And I said, no, honey, it's not that at all. You gave me the best picture of God's love for us that I've ever heard. God loved us so much that he was happy to lose for us. The simplicity of a seven-year-old, well, she was six then, of a six-year-old little girl who loves her Down syndrome friend enough to lose. How much more does your good Father in heaven love you enough to lose? And it was the precious blood of his one and only son. It is far from a sentimental grace. It was costly, and he would have done it again. God so loved the world that he gave his only sons that we might have eternal life. There is no barrier between us and God any longer. If the reality is that you will be marked by one of three things. You will be marked by what you have done, by what has been done to you, or what Christ has done for you. But you will be marked by one of those three things. If you're marked by what you have done, you will feel guilty and carry around a burden of guilt. If you are marked by what's been done to you, you will feel filthy, shame, and defiled. But if it is what God has done for you in Christ, you will be marked by forgiveness, being reborn, adopted into the family of God, accepted, made new, being pure and without blemish. You see, to be loved but not known is comforting, but that's superficial. That is sentiment. To be loved but not known is superficial and sentiment. This is not that kind of love. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And God sees all and knows all. The, the, the fear is that he would not love us. But the kind of love we're talking about is to be fully known and truly loved. And that's the reality of being loved by God. And that kind of love, it liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us in any difficulty life can throw at us. So we're actually free. The game is no longer morbid introspection and being self-absorbed, but the, the name of the game is no longer scorekeeping any longer. The name of the game has changed thanks to the ministry of Christ. One of my favorite hymns about the secure love of God was written by George Matheson. Oh, love that will not let me go. But there is an unbelievably sad story behind that hymn. As a young man, George had only partial vision and was engaged to marry the love of his life. And all was going well with the engagement until he found out and told his fiancée that he would soon be totally blind. And George's spirit collapsed when his fiancée realized she was unwilling to marry a blind man, and she broke off the engagement and left him and returned the ring. And it was in the pain and heartache of that broken relationship and that experience that he found consolation in thinking of God's love that had no limit, no condition, would never be withdrawn, was never uncertain, and would never forsake him. And it was out of the darkness of that experience that he wrote the hymn, O love that will not let me go. 
O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths it flows, may richer, fuller be. With his fiancée, it was a love that was quick to let him go. With God, it is a love that would not. And because of the love of God with, with which he loves you, there is nothing in all creation that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.